Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, where we've got our fingers stuck into the Brexit doomsday clock trying to prevent it ticking down to midnight. I'm Dorian Linsky. I'm joined by two of our regulars. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE Brexit blog. Hello, Ros. Hello. You haven't been on the show since Extinction Rebellion gripped London. Uh, do you think, I mean, obviously we're in this kind of weird sort of lull in, in Brexit. It's not, it's not fixed, I gather. <laughs> but the, the urgency has sort of changed. And, and obviously the climate change seems to have roared into the headlines. Do you think that it could dislodge Brexit as the key crisis issue? There's obviously lots of people saying Brexit's like the second most important thing facing us now, and it, it is hard to argue with, uh, you know, global extinction. Well, it's obviously the most important issue facing you if you're um, younger, quite quite frankly, um, younger than me. And I, um, I I think it will take a bit longer for Brexit to be dislodged among older people, uh, partly because we're just so in- invested in it now. I mean, don't underestimate the importance for political issue that you're invested in and you think you can change. Um, there's a lot of people near me who are just obsessed with not getting a pu- uh, stopping a pub from closing down near me, and one of them one of them chained themselves to a to the bars outside the pub. And it's like, how can wow. you seriously care about this? There are dozens of pubs within a mile radius. I would but on like the to other just hand, put on record my objection to that opinion. <laughs> Seems like a damn fine thing to come for. Well, it was crap pub, but anyway, um, <laughs> it was really, really not that nice. If only and the world were a crap pub, then they would be invested in climate change. But you know, they think they can win it, and you know, yeah. they, it's really, it's really useful to have a political uh, issue that you care about and you think you can win. And let's face it, the environment is a tough one to crack unless you're young and uh, very idealistic. You recently co-edited the LSE Press's first book, The UK's Changing Democracy, The 2018 Democratic Audit, which is out now in all good bookshops. Obviously, uh, from our perspective, British democracy is not in a great state, uh, but what's the the layperson's takeaway from this book? Uh, Well, it was chiefly uh, written before Brexit totally subsumed everything, and at the time, austerity was beginning to show what a toll it was taking on uh, British democracy. But it's it's not a particularly optimistic verdict, as you might expect. And in particular, places like Northern Ireland, where there is effectively no government now, um, are, are examples of how we have failed. And devolution has massively failed in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's been a great success, arguably, in Scotland, but uh, not in Northern Ireland. And But in the round... There are some very healthy things about parliamentary democracy. Things like select committees are kind of livelier than they've ever been, arguably. But as we know at the moment, uh, the civil service is uh, struggling because of Brexit and the load that is imposed on that. And Parliament is struggling. Thanks, Roz. Also joining us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and a man barely able to keep his eye on the Brexit ball because Avengers Endgame and the big Game of Thrones battle are both happening in the same week. 
That isn't even fair, is it? To do it all at the same time. Like, I'm a fucking nervous wreck. Really, it's, scrim- it's criminal. They must have known it would coincide, and I think it was frankly unfair. It's an outrage. Um, <laughs> do you think that the uh, Extinction Rebellion event will, or the, you know, the movement around it, will change uh, politics? There's the interesting spectacle of many young people involved and also a lot of older people uh, obsessively slagging them off and patronising them. <laughs> Toby Young, I believe, has tweeted nine times about Greta Thunberg, which is a perfectly normal thing for a classical liberal to do. <laughs> um, you know, do, do you think this is something that's going to sort of maintain momentum? Probably not at the current rate that it's operating, but it's doing pretty fucking... How long have they been there? What, like a week, 10 days or something? It's on the front page of, I think, three newspapers today and being covered in quite flattering terms when you take our speech from yesterday mm. so at the moment we, we never recognize right when things are going right and at the moment things are going right in this area like i think the protest has been conducted in really good spirits if you remember back to, to when i was a kid when we had sort of like anti-globalization protests or whatever that was mostly just scrapping with the police you know these were quite violent aggressive areas to be that's not how this protest is going the police i think have been pretty moderate quite restrained in the way that they've done it despite lots of the shrieking from the right-wing tabloids from from some ministers they've actually i think got the balance pretty well you're getting the message out there there's a minimum of well kind of a minimum of disruption but certainly no violence so it seems to me like this is almost like a case study in how to pursue a radical agenda through protest and through the formal means so i think you know commendable really i'm also really glad they didn't do that thing where they tried to block the tube because it was just like don't do that i mean a most importantly, it's a fucking pain in the ass for me. <laughs> and also, <laughs> it's not a very effective mechanism because that is a pretty no, good way of doing things. I think they're worried about you and that's why they, they pulled back from the brink <laughs> at the last moment. <laughs> Someone showed a picture of sad Ian and they just went, let's not. Let's not. Let's not. It's not that important. Damn fine protesters. These words. European Parliament's elections might have dislodged a second EU referendum from poll position for the moment, but we may well end up having both before the year is out. And that's where our special guest comes in. Robert Saunders is a historian, political commentator, senior lecturer in modern British history at Queen Mary University of London and the author of Yes to Europe! The 1975 referendum in 70s Britain, which may contain some hints and tips for us going forward. Hello, Robert. Thanks for coming in. Hello. One of my favourite bits of the book was discovering that there was a, a, a record, campaigning record called Common Market Reggae, which uh, <laughs> sadly we could not secure a copy of to play at the top of the show. But I think, is that the kind of blue sky thinking that we were lacking <laughs> in 2016? It's a justly neglected classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think it would have helped the Remain cause mu- musically. <laughs> But I I think it is an indication of something that the Remain campaign did really well in 1975, which is that it wanted to project messages to as many different groups as possible. And it wanted to find out, it wanted to talk to Christians or actors or conservatives or communists Mm. or immigrants in different kinds of ways. And that kind of variety, that sort of multivocal campaign just wasn't there in 2016. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk about that in more detail later, but do you get the sense that the roots of the the present crisis uh, can be traced back to that, the aftermath of that first referendum. I mean, it was a thumping 2-1 victory with almost 17.4 million Britons voting yes, because it's the magic number. But it certainly didn't uh, make us a nation of Europhiles. So was there anything about the way that it was won that left unfinished business? Was there any way that that, you know, that, 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 that kind of victory, that decision could have been made more secure? Or do you just think, well, you know, a lot changes in 40-odd years? I think a lot does change and that that's important that it's it's fair to say that we're talking about a very different entity by the time we get to 2016. 
But it's also, I think, that pro-Europeans were complacent after 1975. They felt they had won this thumping victory. They felt they had settled the question forever. Um, Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, comes out onto the steps of Number 10 on the morning after the results and says, 40 years of national arguments are over. <laughs> so the pro-Europeans, you know, they, <laughs> they packed their bags and went home. Mm. Whereas those who wanted to overturn that result recognised they had a long road to progress and spent the next 40 years building their case. And what's your take on the current direction of British politics? There's there's obviously quite a lot going on. Um, you know, Europe's biggest pro-EU movement has come into life in the last three years. Both major parties radicalised to some extent. You know, in 20 years' time, if you were trying to kind of pitch a book about about this decade, if you're not allowed, you're not allowed the 2016 referendum. Too easy. Um, you know, what 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 would you be interested to sort of zero in on with the benefit of hindsight? I think something that would be really interesting to look back on is what happens to two-party politics in this decade. There are obviously all sorts of forces pulling against it, and all sorts of new parties emerging. There's a lot of discontent with the two big parties. And yet in 2017, they get their largest combined share of the vote for decades. So we, it'll be interesting, in the future, will we be looking back at the strange resurgence of two-party politics in this period, or will we be looking at the, the start of a new multi-party system? Well, later in the podcast, we'll talk about some of the myths, legends and lessons of the 1975 referendum. We'll be asking why the Remain movement seems unable to get its act together for the EU elections. Listeners are begging for a list of who to vote for, but all they're getting so far is mixed messages. And because it will definitely come up the moment any candidate mentions Remain and reform, what are our least favourite aspects of the wonderful EU and can we fix them? All that after these reminders from Roz. Clear your diaries for another Romaniacs Live, and this time it's an Eve of the EU elections crisis special on Tuesday, the May 21st at Leicester Square Theatre in London. The panel will be Dorian, Ian and Naomi Smith, and we're thrilled to announce that our special guest of the night will be comedian, broadcaster and friend of the show, Marcus Brigstock. Marcus's appearance on the podcast last year was one of our best shows, and we're delighted to have him on stage with us, not least because at least someone will know what they're doing in front of an audience. <laughs> Plus, it's a double special event because we'll also be celebrating the launch of Dorian's new book, The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984. There'll be copies on sale and Dorian will be signing them too. Are you writing a book about Orwell, Dorian? <laughs> I don't like to talk about it. Just like, keep me on the down low. <laughs> Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and Patreon people, check out your inboxes for your discount code. And while we're on the arts, don't forget our Donald Tusk short romantic fiction competition. We are looking for 200 words of fine quality Mills and Boone prose featuring EU Commission President and Romaniac heartthrob Donald Tusk. I just can't believe that Alex got there before I did. I, I feel personally invaded. Email Our guest <laughs> looks like he's about to try and escape. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this I was a serious podcast. <laughs> Email yours to info at romaniacs.com. The best one will win a personalised one-off Romaniacs I Heart Tusk t-shirt and mug set. And Alexandria will read out the winning entry on a future show. And if you're really unlucky, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them relatively clean and email them, them with the subject line from Tusk till dawn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Roz. Let's start with the question of the hour, the alarming disarray in the Remain parties when it comes to the European elections. Uh, only last week we were getting all excited at the prospect of a soft second referendum, but the Remain parties are showing zero sign of coordination. Voters are confused about how they should vote. Meanwhile, Farage's Brexit party is pumping out brutally simple messages. Comrades polling for the EU election puts Labour on 33%, Tories down to 18 Brexit party on 17 The Lib Dems, Greens and Change UK 
What is it? What's the full title? Chuck Tick. Chuck Tick. Chuck Tick. Chuck Tick. Combined vote would be 23% if they got their acts together. Uh, that's without counting the SNP, obviously. But as usual, the best lack all conviction while the Nigels are full of passionate intensity. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, you wrote a piece for politics.co.uk headlined uh, Remainers are making a pig's ear of the European elections. Would you care to describe this pig's ear? <coughs> yeah, yes. Um, it's a very unnecessary pig's ear and, and it's getting bigger every day. So even today, I mean, today it seems that they've lost a second candidate, uh, the Cook Tigs. Um, Again, because of stuff they've written. But I mean, you could, you, could, you could just write all of this stuff ahead of time. You know, you spread yourself out too thin. You're not checking all the people that are coming in well enough. And off you go. But even if that wasn't taking place, the, the errors that they're making are so basic. I mean, it starts with, you know, and this is quite, this is quite basic. Come up with a fucking name. Like, don't just keep on switching from one thing to another. You can't, you change UK, which, by the way, is a, is a fucking terrible name. I mean, it really it just means nothing. It doesn't bring up any real sense of what something is, is for, really. It doesn't have any kind of emotional resonance to it. And then attach that to the independent group and then put them to so their logo is four black lines. It looks like something's been redacted. It looks like the bit of their name that would have made it make sense has been redacted from the logo. And then you've got in the same font and the same size, Change UK and then the independent group. Whereas obviously what you want is Change UK and some kind of thicker, bigger writing or a different colour and then that to be some kind of somebody. So you just look at it and you just think, like, what kind of fucking Mickey Mouse operation is this? And that's doubly problematic when they're supposed to be the guys who are the adults in the room, the sensible centrist politicians who know how to do politics. And you think, why are you ruining this really quite elementary procedure? Well, you know, FKA Twigs used to be called Twigs and then so there was another artist called Twigs so she had to change her name. <laughs> FKA. So they could just be uh -huh. called FKA, the independent group. They're <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, no, hang on. Wait, because they brought up another name yesterday, the Remain Alliance, which is something that they have not done. And then said, oh, but by the way, whether it's so now they've got three names, four, if you say that TIG, you know, the shortening of it would be another one. So you honestly get to the point where you think, I, I literally do not know how to describe them when I write about them, let alone someone who's going into the, you know, the voting booth for the first time or hearing about them for the first time. So they are on the really basic stuff, they're screwing it up. And on the more complicated stuff of forming alliances, of working with others, they're screwing that up too. Ros, are there enough serious policy differences? Uh, I mean, obviously, Cooktig uh, policies are, um, are kind of being being sort of formed as we speak. But are there enough differences that we know of between the Lib Dems and Cooktig? You know, that, that would rule out coordination, or is it just sort of is it is more tribal? Is it more about the the ambitions of the respective parties? I think at the moment it's more tribal and they don't want to be associated with a failing party which they see the Lib Dems as. Um, and also, of course, they are ex-Tories, ex-Labour. Those are very different political traditions. I mean, if you look at their website, and I recommend you don't because it's terrible. I mean, it's seriously, it's really hard to find, first of all, and then it's incredibly brief and useless. But when they say who we are, uh, you know, they say we have shared values and we believe, you know, in free media, the rule of law, parliamentary democracy, poverty bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, They're you believe good. all those things. Yeah, motherhood and apple pie. We need more. We need more distinctive policies there. And they, they, the thing is that the European elections have come too soon for Change UK, Cooktig, whatever. Uh, they haven't had time to come up with their policies. And really, it's ironic. I mean, the only thing that is uniting them, in, in apart from these generalities, is opposition to Brexit. But they can't even get a name that exemplifies that. It, 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 
I have a sense of a party that's overwhelmed by the challenges of trying of thinking, oh God, we really ought to come up with some more policy positions. But how the hell are we going to do that when we come from such different traditions? I think they're being really, they're really, really struggling. At well, the moment. they seem to have two aims, which which don't always align. Uh, one is stop Brexit, and obviously that's what you know largely why we're interested in them. Um, and the other is establish ourselves as a party with a future beyond Brexit. And mm. those things sometimes come into conflict. And obviously, you're going to make different decisions based on what you're prioritising. And I don't think Remainers, uh, who are potential voters there would thank them if they felt they were putting their political futures first. Mm. So can they continue to kind of juggle those two goals? I think as long as they really make it clear, I mean, this is going to be a single-issue election. We have a Brexit party, quite straightforwardly, a Brexit party. If they just make themselves the Remain party, and if they sell that, frankly, in terms of most voters, that's all that we'll get across. Um, they might manage it, but if they start getting into other things, I, I don't think they will be able to agree sufficiently to have a co- coherent policy position. We have to also criticise the Lib Dems and the Greens, actually, because they've been no better. I think if um, Kuptik were making overtures to them, I think that they would get a pretty stony response. The Lib Dems selected all of their candidates way before any of this could even be prepared for and put them down. Now, once you do that, if you take them off that list, if you were to do some kind of cooperation, you're letting down people who are, you know, major campaigners for you, especially in areas where you often don't have very much membership. The Greens, talk to the Greens about this stuff, and they're just acting like it's just business as normal for these guys. They're just like, look, why should I? I've got my patch. They're coming onto my patch. I don't agree with the policies. I'm an environmentalist, and off we go. And you just think, like, well, would you... There's no recognition of how severe our circumstances are as a country right now, that this is a national emergency. The other side seems to recognise how severe it is, that everything is to win for. I don't get that sense from the Lib Dems and the Greens. So, I mean, Cooktigs have been tremendously bad. The Greens and the Lib Dems really haven't been much better. Um, Robert, I know it wasn't all sunshine and lollipops, but one striking feature of your book is the ability of the S campaign to coordinate you know, it's a quite a really quite wide coalition and in fact encourage them to have different messengers, different messages, different audiences. Um, I'm sure there were some, but why weren't there more factional disagreements? How did people manage to sort of get on sufficiently well? Well, as in so many ways, the Remain side of the argument today looks more like the Leave side of the argument in 1975. Mm-hmm. So in Leave in, in the 70s, the various elements didn't get on at all. Tony Benn would not share a platform with Enoch Powell when they tried to have meetings, one, one person described it as bringing together people who wouldn't be seen dead in the same coffin. So all, these, <laughs> <laughs> so all these problems were there in the 70s, but they were there on the Leave side rather than the Remain side. And that's partly because the Remain side had the money, it had all the energy behind it, it was going to win, that helps a lot. But also, it was a sort of alliance of the dispossessed of British politics. It was Tories who didn't like Margaret Thatcher. It was Labour MPs like Roy Jenkins who didn't like the direction that their party was going in. So although they came from different parties, actually they were a kind of proto-change UK in that sort of wing of both the two main parties that saw themselves as having more in common with each other than they did with their leaderships. Yeah, because there, there, there was all this sort of cross-party collaboration and almost kind of, and a lot of the major figures there were, I suppose, what we call centrists. Mm. Um, and there could have been, there was an expectation that maybe this would lead to a more sort of centrist moment. And in fact, what happened is the Tories went that way, Labour went that way. Then you had the SDP, um, you know, which, which mm. made splash, but not sufficiently well in the long term. Yes, traditional politics reasserted itself very quickly after 1975, essentially because the status quo won, whereas obviously 2016 destroyed the status quo 
and everything since 2016 has been about dealing with the aftershocks of that. Um, as for Labour, um, whose supporters I notice are delighting in um, Schadenfreude over the is it the two Cooktick candidates that have been exposed for making unpleasant comments on social media, which, if you're a Labour supporter at this particular point in time, seems <laughs> <laughs> seems a little rich. Mind mind that glass house. Um, obviously, it would be it would be great if, as the polls suggest, they would come first in the EU elections without yet articulating a clear position on Brexit. Could they could they keep doing so? I mean, I thought that they would have to kind of, they would have to take a clear stand. But but now I'm not so sure. I don't, I mean, if they can possibly resist it, then they definitely will, just by virtue of their previous behaviour. We've seen them put um, quite prominent Remainers prominently on the list. Now, that was important, right? Because the, the way that these things work is, it's closed list system. So you go in, you put your cross next to the party. There'll be a list of names there, and they will be elected in order. So if you put someone seventh in the Labour position, there's a really good chance they're never going to get to the European Parliament. But if you put them first or second, they almost certainly will. Because it's by proportional representation. So even if the party doesn't come first overall, they're going to get there. So the names that were quite high up on this, people like Seb Dance, who was there, I mean, obviously people like Andrew Adonis, would, would suggest that, that it looks quite remaining. But I, wouldn't, I would caution against taking too much of a sign from that really because it's very possible they'll just think well no one really cares about who figures where on which list chuck them up high we can do whatever we like with the manifesto later but at the moment ultimately and and for really for the whole way that remainers want to behave in this campaign you kind of have to hold off until we've seen the labor manifesto because depending on what's in it is going to influence our behavior If if it does and you never know it's not impossible at all have something quite firm on a second referendum, it might actually make good sense for, for, for Remainers to back them. If it doesn't, if it doesn't mention it at all, it makes no sense for Remainers to back them and they should, they should try and send a message by putting their vote somewhere else. And if there isn't coordination between the, the pro-Remain parties, um, the vote percentage you know, would, would be unaffected, but obviously the number of seats would suffer. Um, would, do you think we'd be on a hiding to nothing trying to sort of spin that result and going, look at the look at the overall uh, percentage rather than the seats? Or is the media basically just going to go, if, you know, it's all about the seats? The media will definitely ask about who's the winner because that's how the media operates, that's how it thinks, and that's how Westminster thinks. However, of course, in the way that we talk about these things, we're going to talk about the popular vote, not just for the parties we've mentioned, but also to the SNP, who everyone will want to write off as a completely parochial sort of, you know, Scottish independence concern, but actually mm. those are Remain votes. Labour votes... Assuming that the, the manifesto is quite nebulous, it, they could basically be interpreted one way or another. And on the back of that, then we're obviously going to talk about what this would mean if there was another referendum, and that matters. But ultimately, the way that the narrative will go is who's the winner? What's the party with the most votes? What's the party that's sending the most MEPs into, um, into Europe? And on that basis, at the moment, it looks like we're in trouble. Because really, the truth is, once you get under 8%, you've got almost no chance of managing to send any candidate over in any seat, let alone the ones that only send back about three MEPs, the ones outside of the southeast in London. So at the moment, that it, it doesn't look like they're going to do well. It looks like Remain parties are going to keep on relentlessly taking votes off each other and shooting themselves in the kneecaps. It's also really important that as many pro-EU uh, MEPs are elected as possible. I mean, just aside from, from all that, because if we end up in a situation where we're sending loads of Brexit party MEPs to the European Parliament and yet oh, we end up optimistically optimistically um, staying in the EU, it's going to be very difficult for us to operate, for us to have the kind of influence that we want to have. So that's something which I think is also very important. 
You've got to, you know, think back just a couple of weeks, right, to when the EU was having its negotiation on wh- how long they were going to make our extension for. And you had Macron, who was basically sounding like he was from the fucking ERG, basically being like, well, they made their decision, they want out, you've got to deliver on this stuff, so off we go. And then you had people like Tusk, you know, subject of all of our slash fiction poems, slash fiction, um, saying, well, look, we need to give them more time, uh, saying afterwards in a speech, um, don't waste this opportunity that's being given to you right now. Now, we need to demonstrate to Europe mm. that there is something going on, some movement, some momentum towards changing minds on this thing. And the more that Remain forces are just scattered and sniping at one another through their leadership, then that becomes almost completely impossible. I don't see any of that, by the way, from Remain campaigners. Remain campaigners, always pragmatic on things like Norway, people's vote, always pragmatic on which party, but they're not, they're being constantly let down by the leadership. Uh, meanwhile, the Brexit party seems to be off to a flying start uh, with huge media coverage and fairly big rallies. Um, are we, Robert, do you think we're mistaken in, in thinking, you know, that stop Brexit is the anti-status quo vote? When for a lot of voters, the status quo is actually the current situation, which is sort of May's paralysed fake Brexit in their eyes. So their insurrection is making a hard you know, no deal Brexit happen. And Farage seems to be running quite successfully on a change platform. Um, which is not something that I thought was going to fly, but apparently it is. Well, I think this is the kind of politics that Farage has always been good at, that he's very good at fighting European Parliament elections. He's done it a lot. That's how he built UKIP's strength up. He's very good at getting a party with no representation at Westminster all over the news. He knows how to leverage a small party in the media. And as long as he's got a kind of anti-establishment case to make, which he can do right now, he can say there's a parliament that's blocking Brexit, there is a prime minister who is blocking Brexit. This is a home fixture for Farage. And I think when we talk about how badly the the Remain parties are doing, and they are in terms of their organisation, it's partly, of course, that this isn't the political world that they know, that the MPs who are part of Change UK, they've come out of the Labour Party and the Tory Party. They don't know how you do this kind of anti-establishment media leveraging politics. Farage does. So it's not a surprise, I think, that he's running the media beautifully on this, and they're not. Can we talk about who was very good? Was Gavin Esler, mm. uh, which I wasn't particularly expecting, I guess, when it was a surprise that he was there at all. And his speech was the one highlight of the launch, really, because he spoke in very clear terms, used these ideas around humiliation, around, you know, countries under attack, this is how we fight back you know, capably done, charismatically delivered, and you just thought, okay, more of this, please. This is the way to do it. The rest of it seemed really complacent and self-congratulatory, talking about Tigger Towers and all of this nonsense. When he came on, it felt like there was electricity right there. It was quite an impressive little moment. There are quite a lot of sort of celebrity candidates this time. There's quite a few actual former Romaniacs guests, which I think they just (laughs) used our show as a stepping stone. (laughs) (laughs) Who had heard of Andrew Adonis before before he came on the show? No, but it, but it's just sort of, it's just really weird, particularly on the Brexit party. They've uh, they've got uh, fake left winger Claire Fox, and from the far right of the Strictly Come Dancing party, Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> um, we've talked about UKIP's freak show last time. I mean, it does give the whole thing a, a somewhat sort of surreal tinge. There's almost there's almost nobody that I would be surprised if they stood at this point. In fact, I'm almost surprised that there aren't more. It's just like, come on, Lineker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who, yeah, need, yeah. <laughs> who needs that? fabulously well-paying job on the BBC as a national treasure <laughs> when you could be uh, you could be fighting UKIP in the um, European Parliament. <laughs> Finally, will the EU elections actually take place? Are there any developments that might mean that they don't and we've just wasted 10 minutes of quality 
podcast time. Even in Westminster, I think they're starting, even in Downing Street, they're starting to give up any hope of stopping them now, I think. When you look at the stuff today, there was some idea floating around that Theresa May was going to try and put her deal forward fourth time by putting the legislation forward. That would be the only way she could get around John Bucko's thing. Exactly how that would make any sense or why it wouldn't get a worse thumping than last time. She can't afford for it to get worse, right? The one thing she has to cling to is that each time she puts it there, the defeat gets narrower and narrower. She can't afford for it to turn around the other way. And I think it would turn around the other way. Um, So I think, you know, the chances of the European elections taking place are very, very strong indeed. Um, We should also add one note of optimism, which is, look, Remain campaigners can do what the leadership has failed to do. There will be attempts to put forward who's doing best, in which seat. You will be able to vote. There'll be some information there in May. So it's not all... it's not a great start, but it's not a complete catastrophe. No, no. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, because it has been it has been dismaying. But I'm not just suddenly prepared to go. Oh well, that's that then. Particularly since there's a lot of the usual suspects crowing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over what's happening on the Remain side. Yeah, and I'm just like, no, no, no. We can we can turn this around. Well, and you feel instinctively defensive, don't you? But mm. then also, you've got to learn the fucking lessons. You can't just have you know. We know take back control worked really well because it was obvious it meant something. And to see people start doing stuff now in the same manner that they did the Remain campaign that didn't work two and a half years ago, you're like, you've got to get a grip, guys. So they have to, you know, you have to give them shit, even though mm. you're instinctively annoyed that you're sort of participating in something that is making Brexiters and Corbynistas so happy. Friendly pressure. And there is the good news mm. that UKIP will probably be wiped out, which is yeah. a good thing, uh, particularly as it's such a nasty far-right party now but anyway so obviously a lot of those votes will go to the Brexit party which is not so good but nonetheless the defeat of UKIP will be good also, I mean it's not by the way I mean, final thing final nice thing it's not as if those those votes for the Brexit party combined with the ones for UKIP are any better than the stuff they were getting in the European elections four years ago it's not like yeah. they're any higher that's just your mm. bog standard Eurosceptic block of votes yeah. that's been portrayed in the slightly new branding so it's not also like there's this great tidal wave of support for the other side either and the building blocks are there for Remain, aren't they, in the way that they weren't in 2014. And you've got an incredibly yeah. energised Remain mm. vote now. Mm. You've got up to six million people willing to sign a petition. You've got a million people marching through London. And you do, as you say, have a social media that makes it possible to circumvent the failings of the party mm. leaderships. Mm. It's, you know, it's hard, but there is something there to work with. Yeah. Well, let's step out of the nightmare present for a moment and look to the nightmare future. The, day- <laughs> <laughs> the days after an EU election or even a second referendum... Um, Remain and reform has been kicking around as a slogan since the referendum. Um, but what does it actually mean and what needs fixing if we turn it around and stay in the EU? Over the weekend, Oliver Norgrove, former Vote Leave staffer and guest on this show, started a Twitter thread asking for people's biggest criticisms of the EU, especially from Remainers. And the results were interesting, uh, citing everything from lack of transparency to running a separate parliament in Strasbourg to failure to engage citizens in the democratic process and poor communications which is from EU supergirl Madeleine Kay, who literally dresses in an EU flag. <laughs> um, so, Rod, I think everybody, even the most ardent Europhile, has some criticisms of the EU. What, uh, what do you think most urgently needs fixing? In some ways, it's quite simple. Um, what MEPs do not do at the moment, and it's not entirely their own fault, but it's partly their fault, is answer the question, what does the EU do for me, and why the hell should mm. you carry on doing it for me? And... They don't get in touch with us much between elections, and those are five years apart, and they are very bad at explaining what, why what they do in the European Parliament has any meaning at all and any impact at all on our daily lives. And I think 
that there should be a mandatory leaflet, okay? There should be a requirement that they have to leaflet everyone in Britain, all the MEPs in each um, European constituency area, explaining what they have done, why they have done it, what they are interested in, what the hell difference their being in the European Parliament makes to your life. And I think that would be a first step in making the European Parliament halfway relevant. You know, I'm I'm ambitious and I would like to see pan, pan-EU uh, political alliances spring up of an exciting new kind. But for the moment, you know, <laughs> until we get there, because that's effectively been knocked on the head. Um, I, uh, for the moment, I would like to see MEPs actually explaining to us what they do and also, there should be a bit more of a requirement in the media to engage with the European Parliament, which I know, you know, you can't tell the media what to cover, but you have to cut through somehow. So in it, for me, it's partly about communication. In fact, it's mainly about communication, first of all. And there are many, many things to be said about the EU bureaucracy, the common agricultural policy, the de- deficits of the uh, Spitzenkandidaten process. Blah, 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 blah. You can go on and on and on. <laughs> but ultimately, why the hell should I care what is going on in the European Parliament is the question that they have to answer effectively. Uh, Robert, you sort of follow the evolution of the EU from the common market, the European Union. Obviously, people, you know, it's fair to say that what people were voting for in 1975 was was very different. Which of the kind of changes over that that time do you find most troubling? Do you do you find either democratic reasons or any other? Well, I agree with everything that Ros has said about the democratic deficit and the transparency deficits, in particular, actually in the EU. But also, I think. If you look back to the 1970s, you still had a generation that had lived through the Second World War. And in fact, in many cases, had lived through both world wars. And that meant that there was an idealism associated with Europe, the idea that this was a project that was going to end a century of war, and it was going to create a new way of old enemies working together. And partly just because of the passage of time, we've lost that sense of idealism about the EU. And we started off by talking about Extinction Rebellion, I think actually one thing the EU could be doing and should be doing actually is getting all over this. Because if you want to tackle climate change, that is the signature kind of issue that you cannot do at mm. national level. Mm. If you want to green the automobile industry, if you want to green aviation, you can only do this on a continental <coughs> level. And this is something where actually you could harness the power of a political union to something really idealistic and inspiring and say to people, we are going to tackle climate change and we're going to do it through Europe. Yeah, that would, that would be great. And also obviously a way of kind of galvanising you know, young people who are committed to that issue mm. into kind of thinking, oh, OK, Europe is the best way to achieve this. Yeah, the idea of a kind of environmental union as part of this. EU Green New Deal. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're writing this down, Cook Tick. This is... <laughs> you should be talking about this. Um, Ian, how about you? What's your least favourite aspect of the EU? Because you, you, you used to be a lot more Eurosceptic. I, well, I still consider myself a Eurosceptic, but I, I definitely have some shifting in... You know, subsidiarity, which is basically the idea that you take the decision at the most local possible level. Now, instinctively, I always, that's the way I always want to go. I mean, the truth is, the more you learn about the single market, the harder and harder it is to find where that level is. Like, you know, it's, it's obviously absurd and it sounds absurd to go EU regulations on the volume of, of lawnmowers or, or, you know, the stuff that gets in the way of my life, literally, the, the, the stuff around vaping, which is limiting nicotine to 2% rather than 5%, where it's just like, well, what the fuck? Like, how, how can you get in my shit like that? However, and that's why I voted to leave the European Union. I, I shit you not. Some people in the vaping thing, that's just literally why they say that they, that they did it. Um, it's actually quite hard. Once you say that we're going to 
harmonize our approach to health. Once you say that we're going to start harmonizing the manner in which we which products were created, not just the output, to start keeping control of how much you centralize to localize. So on that stuff, I've become I find it quite difficult to reach an opinion. If I had to change one thing, it would be the fiscal rule of um, debt as a proportion of three percent of GDP, which is completely ad hoc. I think is economically very facile doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It's not particularly effective because every time someone breaks one of the fiscal rules, the thing they do is just update the fiscal rules to include the breaking so that it looks like they have any fucking meaning. But actually, I mean, on purely economic terms, it prevents you from introducing a stimulus when you look like you're about to go into depression, which is a very, very bad approach. It's a very sort of mm. crusted, Haikian spaff-off, really, that they've ended up with there. I don't, it doesn't do anyone any good. And also, it doesn't have any structure to the way it was implemented. It was just, you know, first Maastricht, then again, then again, every five years, adding to these things, creating some of the Lexeter arguments and worsening market reactions to debt which they do not need to be doing. So first of all, I think you attack the fiscal, you attack the fiscal stuff. You need a much more transparent, much simpler, and with much more economic intelligence behind it. I didn't listen to most of that. Um, I was just too distracted by the conjunction of Hayekian and Spaffer. I was like, this literally, you could Google that phrase, and I swear no one's put those words together before. Thank you. I, I mean, just too dazzled. The rest, just just, I just to, missed the rest. Just trying to was very good. exploding with laughter. Ross, do you think that Admitting these criticisms that, you know, that the, the downside of the remain and reform message uh, is it could be a bit of an own goal and Brexiters can go, ah, even the EU's fans admit it's dreadful. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn infamously rated EU what, seven to seven and a half out of ten, yeah. <laughs> which I remember his, his sort of supporters were going, well, that's that's very honest. That's probably fair. And it's like it may be so but you don't do it in the middle of a referendum campaign in that tone of voice with that face. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, so, so there is kind of you kind of want to admit that it's not perfect, but you don't want to kind of list so many criticisms that people think, well, why, why should we stay in? Well, no, you don't want to spend too much time listing criticisms, but at the same time, you do want to say it's not perfect because no institution is perfect. Um, for all that we love parliamentary democracy, it's not perfect. Uh, there's a lot of things wrong with parliamentary democracy. You know, there's the House of Lords to start with, but uh, many, many things wrong. No system is perfect. And we are on a constant technological journey where hopefully we continue to improve things and make things better. And to say that the EU is perfect, is, to me, is actually very alienating. I mean, the idea that, the, you know, in those terrible, faceless, frankly, glass buildings in, 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 in Brussels and Strasbourg, that, 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 that perfect is <laughs> is incarnate is absolutely terrifying. I remember once meeting a, a lawyer about 10 years ago and he was saying that, you know, the Human Rights Act, it's perfect, it's perfect, there's nothing wrong, there, there is no way you can improve on this legislation. And I think, I'm thinking, hmm, this is a scary, scary thing because mm. you have to, things change and nothing is perfect, no law is perfect, no institution is perfect. So I'm not afraid, no, I don't think I have a problem with criticising uh, the opinion here. Robert, who do you think is best placed to make the Remain and Reform message? Do you think one party is in a stronger position to do so? Or do you think that anyone from, you know, Labour, Greens, uh, Lib Dems, you know, could all equally do that? I think that's the biggest challenge, actually, for the Remain side. Who speaks for them? In 2016, the leadership obviously was provided by David Cameron and George Osborne. And, you know, we all know how that ended up. Great job, Um, lads. It's certainly not going to come from that direction again. 
And it's not coming from the leadership of the Labour Party either. We've been talking about the problems with the Lib Dems and with Change UK and the other fragments. There are people like Caroline Lucas who I think make quite a, an, an impressive pitch. But there is a shortage of these kind of voices. There is a lack of leadership. And I think one of the problems that Chuck Tigg is facing is that it's modelling itself a little bit without wanting to say so because of the associations on Macron's movement, uh, mm. République en Marche. And they don't want to say it, but they're hoping that it could take that approach and that centrist uh, way of thinking about things. But they don't have a Macron. Mm. And Macron was central to En Marche. And for all that I have a lot of time for Heidi Allen, she doesn't quite cut through in the same way. They've got some good people. I mean, it's, it's mostly, I mean, the women in the party are great and most of the men are, are pretty useless, really. Look, I mean, I think she's, she's really good. I mean, Sarah Wollaston mm. is really, really good. I mean, I can't understand, you know, there are some really credible minds there and people who come across naturally. I think Heidi Allen looks better on a morning TV sofa than she probably does doing this. She had this real sort of like an emotional connection in the manner in which she does it. I think Sarah Wollaston is criminally underused. I don't understand why, more, why better things are not coming from that party. But you've got to get a grip on how you talk about politics, not just what you're doing. It needs to be in simple terms with a narrative that is about what you want the country to be. Mm-hmm. And without that, there's just no, you know, it doesn't matter how much you say re- remain or reform. It's not really about that. It's about fucking identity. Unless you speak to that and unless you're able to have that conversation, nothing can progress. And imagining that we do return a bunch of MEPs who aren't rabid Europhobes, do we still have enough political capital to reform the EU. You say remain and reform. But if you just go, hey, guys, we're back. Um, Are they going to go, great, come in and change some stuff? Is it going to be an uphill struggle? Yes. Um, To be honest, a lot of this could have been done and could even now be done through negotiation. If you were to say with the EU, saying, look, you've got this three tier structure that you want to do. You want to have the euro in the middle, the eurozone. You want to have the EU on the outside. And then you've got this EEA EFTA thing, which no one's really known what the hell to do with, which is your sort of arm's length transactional economic thing. So that becomes your your sort of safety net out of the eurozone. If, for instance, just thinking Italy goes catastrophically tits up, which it very well may do, and you need a fucking exit. On that basis, you can provide something to them. Mm. It is not just what you are trying to get from them or asking them for help to limit the damage. And there, I think, as part of negotiations, you can have an intelligent conversation about how reform operates, why it benefits the EU, why it benefits us. But at the moment, if it's us staying in and going, oh, by the way, I think you should do stuff about the reform because we've got all this political capital we want to use right now. (laughs) I don't think that's going to be very successful. This week's special guest is Robert Saunders, historian, commentator and author of Yes to Europe, the 1975 referendum and 70s Britain. Robert, did you start planning this book before or after June 2016? I feel like it has more sort of urgency because leave one, but I wonder if it's something you thought about earlier. It started back in 2012. Wow. The next referendum was just a, a twinkle in David Cameron's eye. <laughs> so no, it became obviously a lot more topical mm. as, as time went on, but it wasn't originally meant to be an intervention in the second referendum debate. What surprised you? What do you think that we've forgotten or misremembered or just been misinformed about 1975? Which is something, to be honest, I grew up without a lot of knowledge of, of how that played out anyway. Well, I think the waters closed over it very quickly, precisely because the Yes campaign won. So it wasn't really talked about. um, It wasn't remembered. It's striking that, as far as I can tell, nobody involved in the Stronger In campaign in 2016 bothered to speak to anybody who had been involved in 1975 to find Mm. out what they did. I don't think there was any interest in learning lessons whatsoever. 
Well, because when I was thinking reading the book, I was like, man, this would have been really useful. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying you should have moved faster, but I'm just, no, I'm saying it would, have, it would have been really useful to just to read, let alone even to speak to anyone, you know, in early 2016. Because there were a kind of a lot of lessons there that maybe were not learned. I was on the panel, actually, shortly before the vote with Bernard Donoghue, who was Harold Wilson's chief of staff. And someone from the audience said to him, has anyone from Number 10 been in touch? And he just laughed. He said they're not interested in the past. And I think he was right, actually, that if you read the diaries of people like Craig Oliver and the sort of Tim Shipman accounts <clears throat> of the campaign, this was a group of people who thought they knew how to win elections. Mm. And their sample of elections was 2010 the 2014 Scottish independence referendum in 2015. And that was what they were interested in. Well, it's amazing well, because those campaigns were also shit. Well, yes. I mean, 2010, <laughs> they lost. Yes. 20, yeah. You know, the independence campaign, they almost, you know, came with a hair's breadth of losing. Well, and then even when you got a majority, it was still a pretty piddly majority. I think the really interesting one actually is 2014, where I think they drew spectacularly the wrong lesson, that they regarded 2014 as a triumph in which this sort of economic fear message, the idea that, yes, emotionally you might want an independent Scotland, but you can't afford it. Mm. They drew the moral that that lesson worked, and it would work again in 2016. Whereas I think it's hard not to look at 2014 and look at the collapsing lead that the unionist side had over that period and think, well, they just about won the vote, but they spectacularly mm. lost the campaign. Uh-huh. Mm. Which one of those books where I was struck by similarities and differences all the time, and, you know, there's some blitz rhetoric... Yes. Obviously, different because many people remember the Blitz. There's a versions of Project Fear. There's the people versus the elites. There's an obsession with Norway. Yes. <laughs> like a really big <laughs> obsession with Norway, even then. Um, but I suppose most notably, you know, Harold Wilson, he's, a, he's the Prime Minister, lukewarm on Europe, agreed to a referendum because his party was divided. Um, Cameron sort of had a model to sort of follow there, or at least to sort of look at. What did... And this is, I think, in the conclusion of the book that you're asking this question, what did Wilson get right that Cameron got wrong? How did he, did, did, why did he play it so well? I think Harold Wilson was a much more skilled politician than David Cameron, but I also think he was operating in more benign circumstances. Mm. So one thing that helped Wilson a lot was that in his cabinet, he had a number of really strong remainers. He had people like Roy Jenkins and Shirley Williams who were going to go out and lead the campaign for him while people like Tony Benn and Michael Foote campaigned to leave, which meant that Wilson could play the sort of referee, looking in rather bemused be- bewilderment <laughs> at the sort of strange people who were enthusiasts on either side. And he could be a kind of moderator. And he could also pitch himself to the public as, I'm the sceptic. You know, I don't really like Europe either, but with my head, I think we should stay in. And I think that's the role that Cameron would like to have played. But of course, there was nobody else who was going to run the Remain campaign. You know, I'm sure that Back in 2013, what David Cameron imagined happening was a pro-European Labour leadership and the Lib Dems and groups like that who were going to be really driving the Remain campaign and he would have been a little bit more backseat. But of course, the Lib Dems were shattered. Labour acquired a broadly Eurosceptic leadership and suddenly he was running the campaign himself. Well, Labour has become, I mean, massively more Europhile than it was in, in, in 75. Was it extremely bad luck for, for EU supporters that in 2016, Labour... Uh, you know, to everyone's surprise, was led by a Benite who voted no in that first referendum. I mean, that just seems like a yes. real historical kick in the nuts. Of course, one of the questions that historians <laughs> argue about all the time is what's the relationship between sort of deep structural forces and just historical accidents? You know, did the First World War happen because of deep changes in the power balance in Europe, or did it happen because Franz Ferdinand's car took a wrong turning mm-hmm. one day? And you can ask that kind of question with 2016 as well. There are all kinds of really deep structural reasons why Britain voted to leave. But there are also the accidents. 
like the fact that the Labour Party acquired a Eurosceptic leadership. Now, it's not an accident that Jeremy Corbyn won that election, but he didn't win because he was Eurosceptic. That was mm. just something that was a kind of chance add-on. In spite of, yes. really. I think people just didn't pay that much attention yes. to that. Uh, do you think, I mean, the anti's biggest voices, as we mentioned, because you call them, they were called anti's then rather yes. than leavers, weren't they? Um, were Tony Benn and Enoch Powell. Um, was the Yes campaign very fortunate in having opponents like that? Who were both, you know, I know that Tony Benn was kind of, I know he became quite a cuddly figure in later years, mm. but, you know, I've read sort of other accounts of that period. And he was absolutely loathed by a lot of people, sort of demonised as a kind of seditious communist. Enoch Powell, obviously, uh, raging racist. Um, so when you had them, I mean, that must have been a sort of gift, isn't it? That's basically yes. like having... It, it's, there was no Boris Johnson Absolutely. or Michael Gove yeah. to cross over and legitimise them. Yeah, there was no Boris Johnson, the Boris Johnson of 2016, someone that was broadly liked across the political spectrum, someone that, that people smiled when they heard come on the television or the radio. People like Enoch Powell and Tony Benn were extremely talented politicians. They were extremely good orators, but they aroused very, very strong polarising reactions. And the Yes campaign actually did some quite interesting market research. And what they discovered was that every time Ben or Powell went on the radio making the case to leave, support for staying in went up. <laughs> so you actually had the Yes campaign <laughs> trying to get their opponents on the airwaves. Amazing. And if you think beyond then, you know, the Yes campaign just put on their posters the people who want you to leave, the Soviet Union, the IRA, the Reverend Ian Paisley, the Communist Party of Great Britain. You know, and so they could pitch it as whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of the sensible people, the people you admire, or what Harold Wilson called the people with swivelling eyes? <laughs> well, and that's exactly what Cameron tried to do, right? If you remember that that program, uh, the, the what the hell was it called? And um, Benedict Cumberbatch drama. Oh yes. When yeah. Farage leaves, he says that's a, a walking enigma, leaving the door because as soon as this man talks, when his popularity goes up, you know our campaign goes worse. So you could see them want to do it with Farage, but I guess it didn't work because because of the res the respectability. And I think when you think about those those big debates in inverted commas in Wembley Stadium and you think who was representing Leave, it was people like Boris Johnson, it was Gisela Stewart, it mm. was an Andrea Leadsom that no one had particularly heard of, that these didn't come across as being wild revolutionary voices. The political landscape uh, in 1975 sort of looks like bizarro world now. <laughs> like you're trying to, because the most, there were more prominent antis in Labour than in the Tories. Yes. You had Thatcher pro, but not just Foot and Ben, but Neil Kinnock anti. The SNP, Plaid Cymru and the major parties in Northern Ireland were all anti. Scotland, even though basically I think everywhere except Shetland and the Western Isles yes. voted yes, it was tightest in Scotland. Um, and you had the support of pretty much all the press, um, including Murdoch's son. So how did Brexit end up becoming such an overwhelmingly right-wing project when it seemed back then to be, you know, obviously the right-wing Antis, but it seemed to be largely the sort of domain of the of the left and nationalists. Well, I think that's where context becomes so important. That if you take someone like Margaret Thatcher in the 1970s, who was never an emotional pro-European, never particularly liked the continent, but was active in the Yes campaign, what she liked about European integration was firstly it was a market, so it was a defence of market capitalism against socialism at home. Secondly. It was an alliance against the Soviet Union. In that sense, it was very much a Cold War alliance. Um, thirdly, it was a guaranteed source of food supplies at a time when there was real anxiety about that. Now, you fast forward to the 1990s, and that world has changed. The Soviet Union has disintegrated. The market is absolutely unchallengeable. You're in the age of the Washington Consensus. 
All the anxieties have been about the United States in the 1970s, the United States of Nixon and Watergate and Vietnam, perhaps retreating into isolation. That had gone. So there was a conservative case for Europe that simply disintegrated mm. and was never recharged and refurbished because there was never a vocal, uh, with the possible exception of Ken Clark, there was never anyone in the conservative leadership who was making a new conservative case for Europe. And how did the left come to love Europe? Like I said, I was, I was surprised how anti-Kinnock was at that point. So it's partly, I think, the the searing experience of the 1980s and the series of defeats that the left experiences at home in Britain that actually Europe starts to come to seem a protection against the market, a protection against Thatcherism. Um, there's a famous moment where Jacques Delors comes to the Labour Party conference and the delegates sing Frere Jacques at him <laughs> because this seems to be the only person out there who can actually stop Thatcher in full flame. I also wanted to ask about this uh, cover story you just wrote for the New Statesman the other week with the cheery headline, The Rise and Fall of British Democracy. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that you're calling for sort of more you know, local government, voting reform, uh, getting rid of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. There's quite a kind of slate of reforms. Mm. The one that really interests me is the argument that increasing internal party democracy has reduced democratic choice overall, which I remember seeing you sort of air on Twitter before, mm. before the essay came out. Um, can you just briefly explain why and, and, and where that's led us and, and what you might do to kind of restore some balance? Well, for all sorts of reasons, but I think principally because party membership was collapsing over such a long period of time. The parties tried to re-energise and reanimate their memberships by handing them more and more powers. And the most obvious would be the power to choose the party leader. And that was done, I think, you know, very benevolently in the interests of democracy. But it created parties that were internally democratic, but it actually gave those members a wildly disproportionate power in relation to the rest of us. And I think we might see this in practice later this year if we assume that at some point Theresa May either stands down or is removed then those of us who are not members of the Conservative Party are going to sit around for six weeks waiting while 120,000 anonymous people choose our Prime Minister. And we will have our first ever directly elected Prime Minister placed in number 10 by a direct vote, but not voted for by us, not voted for by our representatives, but voted for by electorally a tiny group of people who we can't hold to account, whose names we don't know, and who are not in any way responsible to us. And in that sense, I think actually we've done something that's profoundly anti-democratic by handing that kind of power to the less than 2% of British citizens who belong to a political party. Is there any way of reversing that? I, can't, I mean, it'd be tough if you're a Labour leader trying to make, or a Tory leader trying to make it less democratic now. It's, it's very difficult. I think there is a strong intellectual case to be made for returning that power to members of Parliament. But I don't see a leadership, especially one that has to pitch to that membership, having the courage to do it. So I think the, I think really there are, there are two viable solutions. One is that we have to go to a more proportional electoral system in which it matters less if party members have that kind of power because we have a wider range of parties to choose from and they have, they have to work with one another in Parliament. The other, I think, is to say that if we actually want these leaders with personal mandates, then we have to do it properly and we have to think about an elected presidency in which, right. yes, they can select their candidate, they can choose Dominic Raab or Peter Bone or Tommy Robinson or whoever it is that they want as their <laughs> candidate, but then the rest of us actually get to confirm or reject that yeah. choice. And, of course, if you do that, then a Macron becomes possible because the other difference with En Marche is the fact that we haven't got that system where a Macron can smash through and then build a party behind. And finally, as you said, that in 2016 they didn't take lessons since 1975. Now your book is out, so they don't have an excuse. So if we have uh, another referendum... What would be 
the kind of the key lesson that, that they really should learn this time from that? Uh, I think there are two. One is I think you've got to pair Project Fear with Project Hope. You actually have to give people something to believe in and something to make them feel good about voting for membership. The other is that you can't just run this dreary, single-issue, message-discipline campaign. In 2016, for Remain, it was the economy every day and nothing else. What they did in 75 was find out what ordinary people were interested in and connect that to Europe. And that's what they would need to do again. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Robert. The end of the show is here, and that means another contribution to the Brexit time capsule. Robert Saunders, what are you putting in a repository of things we miss if we leave you in the spirit of 1975 Blue Peter time capsules? Can I put a chair in? <laughs> Any chair? Well, <laughs> a chair perhaps with a Union Jack pinned to it. Because <laughs> I think what we're going to miss, assuming we leave, is a seat at the table. And that when big decisions are being made that shape all our lives, decisions about climate change or decisions about how we respond to trade pressures from Trump's America or from China or how we respond to another Russian attack on British soil, we are going to be at best standing outside the room shouting down a megaphone and at worst simply sitting by the fax machine at home. And what we're going to miss is that chair at the table where people are making the decisions. This week's EU language farewell clip is from Emma Tricker and it's in Italian. Tanto va la gatta lardo che ci lascia lo zampino. And that means curiosity killed the cat or more accurately greed killed the cat. Either way, the cat's dead. <laughs> Send us your European language clips at info@romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. Robert Saunders, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And here's our theme tune, Demons the Monster, and a salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Philip Howells, Duncan Davidson, Tom Perkins, Tom Clark, Philippa Baker, Stephen Kingsella, and got around to your last mate, uh, Thomas, could be the tank engine, could be anyone, uh, Martin Butler, James Seifer, and Robert Meller. Thank you very much indeed. Hello to Alexander Horstman, Marie Ann P, Thomas Gover, Harriet Short, Sandy Murphy, Jake Weatherall, Duncan Rogers, Rokos Frangos, uh, Sean, uh, just Sean, and James Fiddler. And thanks for me to Sarah Louise Evans, Frank Power, Alan Baird, Connor McNicholas of Enemy fame, Ellie Coden, Bonnie Jones, Jonathan Solly, Simon West, Ian Davis and Martin Colson. Now you can play yourselves out by imagining the sound of common market reggae. <laughs> <laughs> Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt and Ross Taylor. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Elsie Bath. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 